Good morning, y'all. Good morning. How beautiful was that? We got to share the Lord's Supper together. Awesome. I want to, before we get started, or maybe even as we get started this morning, I want to give you a couple of little things that are going on, and then we'll jump into this message. Next Sunday will be the first Sunday, and it's kind of weird because I'm Richard and I were talking uh, before worship this morning, and I said, how excited can I be about physically gathering together again? Next Sunday will be the first Sunday. And the reality is I am super excited about it. But I want you to know how cautious we're being. And from a sanitation, you know, having the worship area uh, super sanitary with having, you know, hand sanitizer and wipes and we're, we're getting uh, everything in the building professionally cleaned and you're not going to have to touch doorknobs and all of that kind of jazz. I just want you to feel good about that. And, uh, and so we are physically gathering again um, next Sunday, so we're excited about that. <clears throat> um, I also um, want to remind y'all uh, to, uh, to share this feed right now, to share this message. I think the Lord has a uh, super uh, important Jesus-focused message this morning, and so I want y'all to click the share button and share that, uh, share that right now. So we are, we're, we're in week two of a message series that, that we're calling Eyewitness, Eyewitness. It's almost like, uh, it's almost like Easter the next day, Easter the next week, Easter the next couple of weeks. That's kind of what we're, what we're looking at. In other words, we're looking at four events, four occurrences, four interactions that the risen Christ had with somebody or some group of people. Last week, we were in the Gospel of Luke, and we talked about Cleopas, and if you remember, uh, the other dude, we called him Nameless Guy, and they were on the road to Emmaus, and so we talked about that interaction that they had with, uh, with the Lord there on the road to Emmaus. Today, we are uh, going to talk about doubt. We're going to talk about doubts, and the title of today's message is The Skeptic. And I w- I'm going to say this. I'm going to say that it doesn't matter whether you are a Christian or not, you have dealt with doubt. And if you say that you hadn't uh, dealt with doubt, that you've never doubted, I- I'm going to say that I'm not buying it. We all, every one of us have had doubts. Every one of us have questioned things sort of at some point in our lives, and maybe it is questions about this book, and you read a story in this book, or you were taught this or that, and and you were like, uh, a global flood. You're asking me to believe that there was a flood that encompassed the whole earth, and and the Lord asked this guy to build a boat, and, and in walks two of every animal, and that's how God saved life on earth while he destroyed everything else. Yeah, right. Or that the Red Sea actually split open and parted and over a million people walked across that dry ground and, and then when the bad guys started walking across it, God closed it back up and killed all of them. Or how about a teenage girl who is pregnant and the father of that child is the Holy Spirit? What kind of sense does that make? Or maybe it's about sections of the book, sections of the Bible that seem to contradict each other. Maybe that is, is putting some doubt in your mind. Here's a huge one. If God is good, then why is there evil and pain in the world? 
Think about the times that we're in right now. And like you're like, I don't see any way that, that, that there could be a loving God, a loving God that's in charge and things be like they are right now. Or how about where did Cain's wife come from? I had a buddy of mine about 10 years ago that asked me that question. You tell me where Cain's wife came from and I'll believe that's what he said to me. Or maybe you question or have questioned some of the relevancy of some of the Bible's teachings about morality because they just don't fit with today's times, right? Or do you sometimes maybe even hear just the Christian message? You hear the gospel and you're like, really? Uh, a guy was born 2,000 years ago and, and this guy saved the world, but he saved the world by, by, by being beaten and hung crucified on a big wooden cross and that was supposed to be bring peace on earth and meanwhile there have been tons there's been tons of violence since then but one day soon he's going to come riding in the clouds on a big white Clydesdale to gather up his people and destroy all of the evil folks and restore the earth so doesn't everybody believe that oh and one little other caveat that guy is the only the only way to heaven and if you don't buy into his deal, then you're going to hell. Now, some of you probably are saying, well, I didn't realize I had any doubts, but now that you went through that whole list, look, man, I get it. Like, I get it. Like, you have questions. You have doubts. I, I, had, I had tons of doubt. Trust me. And here's what I'm going to tell you. Doubts, I believe, are a huge reason why people, quote, can't believe. I know people who I think would really like to believe, but they feel like, y'all, that they got to check their brain at the door and they're just not going to do it. They're not just, they're just not going to do it. And the doubt begins to hold them hostage. So today, among a few other things, I want us to learn what, what Jesus taught us about dealing with our doubts. Now, I want you to notice, I didn't say that this was about how to never have doubts. That's not what I said. I said, but what to do with them when we have them? And so who do you reckon our subject is today? Who, who is the witness today? You know, who, who's the guy that we're going to talk about today that saw Christ after the resurrection? It's Thomas, a guy named Thomas. And we know him as blank Thomas, as doubting Thomas. And Thomas's story, it kind of reaches its, its pinnacle in the Gospel of John, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, the fourth book of the New Testament, uh, in John chapter 20, and it begins in verse 24, and it runs really, really through verse 31. And so, like, I feel kind of bad about John, uh, about uh, Thomas, really just because of what he's totally remembered for, and that is his doubt. The other guys, Jesus' other guys, they don't somehow have... Um, have their faults attached to their name? You know, it's not like denying Peter, you know, or flaky Philip or, or, or Nathaniel the prideful. It's not like that for the other guys. But Thomas, Thomas gets named for his. And here's Thomas's story. I'm going to shoot through his story kind of quickly. Mary Magdalene, you know, one of Jesus' followers, she goes to the tomb early Easter morning to anoint. She's there to anoint Jesus' body. When she gets there, she finds the stone rolled away, and she assumes that somebody stole the body, and she runs back to tell all of the other disciples, and Peter and John have a race to the tomb, and Peter goes in, and he finds Jesus' body uh, 
gone, but he finds this cloth, this face cloth, folded up real neatly, and it's put over here on this bench. And Peter's like, nobody robbed this grave because, because a robber's not going to take the time to fold up this cloth real neatly after they steal stuff. So Peter's like, what's going on here? And then late that night, Easter night, late that night, Jesus appears to all of his disciples in the middle of a room where all the doors are locked because the disciples that are there are scared to death that they're going to be the next ones to be crucified. But verse 24 in John 20 says that Thomas is not there. Thomas is not there. He's gone. Thomas gone to get Starbucks or something. And so when Thomas comes back from that Starbucks run, the other guys tell him that, ah, you just missed Jesus. And Thomas is like, I ain't buying that. I mean, I ain't buying that. Verse 25 says, unless, Thomas is like, I ain't buying that unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. And I'm going to go out on a limb, y'all, and I'm going to say that this is probably number one on the all-time list of things real people regret saying. You think about it. Me or you say something stupid in a group of 10 guys sitting around a campfire, we might be embarrassed for like five minutes. Thomas says something stupid, and it's recorded in the Bible forever, and, and he gets named for it for all time. And the reality is, you know, Thomas is not the only guy in the scriptures to have doubted. Who is it that Jesus called the greatest prophet that ever lived? That would be John the Baptist. And John the Baptist is this guy after uh, preaching that Jesus was the promised Messiah. John gets discouraged. Why does John get discouraged? Because Jesus is not bringing in the kingdom the way that John had, John the Baptist, had in his mind. It was not going the way that he sort of thought and felt it was going to go. And so he sends this message to Jesus that's recorded in Luke chapter 7 in verse 19. He says, are, are, are you the one who is to come or should we be looking for another? In other words, like, is, are you not who I thought you were? Are you not who we thought you were? Did I mess this up? And this is the same crazy radical prophet guy who, who's dressed in camel hair and he's kind of living in the woods and eating bugs, but he's the same guy that also said, here is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So really, that guy had doubts. He went through a season of doubt. And there's another one right at the end of Matthew. There's bunches of them, but you got Matthew in chapter 28. In verse 17, and the disciples had gone on to Galilee where, where the risen Christ told them to go. And then verse 17 says, and when they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. Y'all, the point here is this. Thomas was not alone in his doubts. And I believe that it is super significant that John tells Thomas's story last. That John saves that story of Thomas for last. John tells us the purpose of his book, the purpose of his gospel. Why did he write his gospel? Was to give me and you stories of people that believed. Not just so that we can have these stories about people that believed, but so that that then we would come to believe. That word believe, y'all, 
It is the theme in, uh, of the Gospel of John. The word believe is used more in John than anywhere else in the Scripture. And the truth is, your story is not just for you. Your story is to be leveraged by you for somebody else's forever. That is what the Gospel of John is about. That's what the Gospel is about. So he tells us in, in verse 30, uh, in John 20 and verse 30, he says, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book, but these, these stories that John had written, these are written, why? So that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ. But it's not a period there. It's not just so you can believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. And I think, I believe that, that John, by putting Thomas's story last, is really saying that Thomas is like the poster child of, in the whole book of somebody who's, who's stuck down in this pit of unbelief, in this pit of disbelief, but then came to believe. In fact, Thomas, ultimately, he makes one of the boldest belief statements, y'all, in all of the scripture. And I think it may be the pinnacle in... in, in uh, in John 20, it may be the pinnacle of, of the entire gospel that John writes. Now, look, let's look for a second at how, uh, how that all happened for Thomas. So first question is, why do we think that, um, that Thomas was so stubborn to believe? I mean, 10 of his best buddies, 10 of his best friends had just told them all of the things that they'd seen. And for some people, that would just be enough. For Thomas, not so much. And so maybe you today are wired up sort of the way he is. Your friend said this and this, but that's just not enough for you. That's not enough to change your mind. And Jesus really had wrecked every thought that Thomas had for what Messiah was supposed to be like. In Thomas's mind, the Messiah would come and he would crush the bad guys and the good guys would win, but, but Jesus had shown up a friend of tax collectors and a friend of prostitutes and a friend of sinners and then he dies in weakness and he dies in shame and Thomas, Thomas just didn't have room in his mind for a suffering and a defeated Messiah. In Thomas's mind, that just ain't the way it was supposed to be. And so do you ever feel like that? Be honest with yourself. Do you ever feel like uh, like the way that God seems to be doing things is so radically different from your expectations, so radically different from what you expected him to be and to do. Like this image that God paints of himself, this image that the scripture paints of God is so different from your own experience and it just kind of blows you away. Or, or maybe there's certain things that God has done or God hasn't done and they just really disappoint you. Be honest with yourself. Has that ever happened? Have you ever felt that way? Well, Thomas's mind is blown away. Thomas's expectations are blown away. And the reality is Thomas's heart is broken. And, and, and when those things happened, and even today, when those things happen in your mind, it's hard to believe. And so Thomas says, unless I see the scars myself, I ain't believing. I ain't believing. I'm checked out. And then verse 26, 
says eight days later, so a week later, a week after, uh, after Easter, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them this time, although the doors were locked. Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. And then he said to Thomas, put your finger in here and see my hands, and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. And so as a little bit of an aside, how does Jesus know just the right thing at just the right time to say to Thomas? He wasn't there when Thomas had made this statement about I got to see the holes in his hand. Jesus wasn't there when he said that. But now wait a minute now. The resurrected Jesus is omniscient, big kind of theology word. It just means that he knows everything. And Thomas realizes that and feeling the uh, the weight, the weight of Jesus' omniscience and his power, he hits the ground and he says to Jesus in verse 28, my Lord and my God, my Lord and my God. He goes on verse 29, and Jesus said to him, have you believed because you've seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believed. And y'all, Thomas, Thomas doubting Thomas would end up dying a martyr for his belief. Thomas was speared in India for preaching the gospel. So let's get real. Let's just get real about this. I think that for any human on the planet that has not bought into this whole God thing, that's not bought into this whole Jesus thing, if Jesus walks in your living room through a wall and says, I'm real, and the Bible is true, every word of it, and he allowed you to stick your finger in a hole in his hand and stick your hand in his side, I'm saying you're in. I'm saying you're in. But the reality is, since his ascension to the Father, that's just not typically the way that he does things. Could he do that? Of course he could do that. But typically, that's not the way he does it. But for Thomas, in that time, that was the way that Jesus chose to reveal himself. And Jesus didn't answer all of Thomas's questions. Like, he didn't answer any deep doctrinal theological truths about his crucifixion and all of this stuff or why he didn't do all the things that Jesus, uh, uh, that Thomas thought Jesus should have done. He didn't answer all that. He didn't answer all that, but here's what he did do. Y'all, this is a big deal. He revealed himself in the way that Thomas needed. He revealed himself in the way that he knew Thomas needed. In that moment, y'all, in that moment, Thomas quit demanding and yielded to revelation. So that was then, but me and you live in the now. We live now. So in the now, probably Jesus is not going to physically show up and literally reveal to us holes in his hands. But y'all, does that equal that there's no evidence for belief? That there's not enough evidence for belief? I don't think so. I think that people's unbelief is not there for lack of evidence of God's existence. It's not there for lack of evidence of Jesus' resurrection. You know, it's not there for lack of evidence in all the truths that surround the gospel. I believe that it is because they have some other reason. They have some other agenda. They have some other motive. They have some other question that, quote, keeps them from believing give you a couple of examples. Aldous Huxley, philosopher, writer, I think in the 30s and 40s. He was an agnostic. 
super brilliant brain. He's an agnostic. Here's what he said, and it's on the screen. He said, I had motives for not wanting the world to have a meaning and consequently assumed that it had none. He said, there's no valid reason why man should not do as he wants to do. For myself, the philosophy of meaningless was essentially an instrument of freedom. Of freedom for what? Freedom from a certain sense of morality. So for Huxley, y'all, in this godless world that Huxley created in his mind, it frees him to act and do whatever he wants to do, which he did. Super intelligent guy that did a lot of acid. Super intelligent guy that did a lot of psychedelic drugs because his godless world that he created allowed him to just do and act in whatever way he wanted to. And then another name, a guy named Bart Ehrman. He calls himself, and this is the current guy, he calls himself an atheist agnostic. And he's a professor of what? Of religion at University of North Carolina. Like, how is that? But he is. Here's what he said. He said, I think that if, listen to the word that permeates this. I think that if in fact God Almighty appeared to me and gave me an explanation that could make sense to me of the slaughter of innocent children and the explanation was so powerful that I actually could understand, then I'd be the first to fall on my knees in humble submission and admiration. And so what he is admitted here is that until he gets the explanation that he demanded that makes sense to him, in this case for evil in the world, until God meets his demands, he's done with it. And then I've got an atheist friend, who, a young guy who's a geneticist at MIT in Cambridge, Massachusetts. He said kind of the same thing to me about five or six years ago. He said, the only way that I will subscribe to any religious beliefs is that if they can be proven using quantifiable, so that's measurable, replicable, which means they can be repeated, experimentation, whatever mode that may be. That's how we establish truth in our society that we can all agree on. So this dude needs a test tube God that can be replicated in some science lab. Y'all, I believe, here's the deal. I believe that what we see here is a heart and head problem. It's heart problems and it's head problems. Here's a truth, man, there's two truths. The heart will not accept what the mind has already rejected. The heart will not accept what the mind has already rejected and, and the, the mind will not accept what the heart has already rejected. When Thomas screams out in John 20, my Lord and my God, I believe that we get an image, a beautiful, beautiful five-word image of a mind change that results in the transformation of a heart. And you know, the yardstick for most people, most people who don't believe the yardstick is really proof beyond all doubt. And, that, and in, their, in their mind, proof beyond all doubt, really, y'all, really is just code for I have already decided and I'm unwilling to even consider any evidence whatsoever. The heart will not accept what the mind has already rejected. Y'all, this was me. This was totally me. My belief was that, yeah, there probably is a higher power than us. And if you want to call that higher power God, then that's fine. But that's about as deep as it went for me. 
My mind really rejected anything more than that. And I lived way most of my life, 37 years of my life, rejecting in my mind anything more than that. And I never really thought it worthy of even looking into. But then I pick up a Bible. As a skeptic, as a doubter, over the course of a year, God revealed himself and his gospel to me in the pages of the scripture in just the way that he determined that I needed. He revealed himself through the study of his word. And it took about a year for my mind to accept that, for the rejection to, that was so ingrained in my mind to kind of be replaced with truth. It took about a year for that to happen. But when it did, dude, when it did, it moved from my head to my heart. Remember, the heart will never accept what the mind has already rejected. But on January 17th of 2001, I had a heart transplant. And Thomas's words, they rang in my mind. My Lord and my God. And you know how that probably sounded and the way that probably looked when Thomas did that. It was probably like, my Lord, my God. That's probably the way it looked and sounded. And for me, my belief, it began with, with submission and probably not even submission like you think submission. I didn't even realize it at the time, y'all, and I never would have probably admitted it. But it began with submission, and I'm talking about submitting to the possibility that I may be wrong. I'm talking about submitting and the willingness to consider belief, just to consider belief, because that naturally has got to precede belief. There has to be a willingness on your part. And y'all, that is big time hard for most people. You may not even realize it, but that may be you today. It definitely was me. And then I get to Matthew chapter 7, sometime in the fall of 2000. Matthew chapter 7, starting in verse 7, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives and the one who seeks finds and to the one who knocks, it'll be opened. And I believe that what is behind that door that Jesus is talking about there is truth and that that truth leads to belief and that belief leads to a saving relationship with the Lord. The first words in each of those little clauses in verse 7, asking, seeking, knocking, all of that displays a willingness to at least consider belief, a willingness to consider what you'll find when that door is open. So when people don't believe, it's almost always for some other reason. For Bart Ehrman at UNC, it's the problem of evil. My friend at MIT, it points to the absence of what he would call high quality evidence. At least Aldous Huxley was honest because he said his motivation for unbelief was just so he could do whatever he wanted to do. And so my challenge to you today is this, be honest with yourself. Be honest with the, with the person in the mirror. If you don't believe, why is it that you don't believe? Ask yourself, what's the real reason? Like, what's the real reason? Because the, the, the reality is that the evidence is there. If you can muster up the humility to simply consider that there may be some truth to the gospel message. Just consider it, y'all. Investigate it yourself. Press that book. Press it hard. Question it. Question it. 
Doubt it all you want because I believe that Jesus will walk with you in that journey. Even in the doubt, he'll do it. And you will probably find some things that you can't fully understand. I did. But you can find enough. You're probably going to find some things that are super blunt and very well may offend you. I did. But if you're honestly willing and you dig and you search and you knock and you ask, you're going to maybe begin to trust God just a little bit and then maybe just a little bit more and then maybe just a little bit more. Even though there may still be a little doubt here and there. Over time, very often, the trust will begin to outweigh the doubt. The trust will begin to outweigh it a little bit. But if you refuse to approach the question of Jesus with that sense of humility and submission and willingness to consider, you will never know the truth. When Jesus said, he who has ears to hear, let him hear, I think this is what he's talking about. The sound is being made. The voice is speaking, but the question is, do you have the humility to hear it and consider it? All right, so I said a little while ago that I, that I believe that this is a head and a heart thing. And I do believe it was, it's a head and a heart thing. But if I dive down, dig down a little bit deeper, fundamentally, I think it's a heart problem. It's our heart, y'all, that has got to change. Though our mind may be the vehicle that God uses to lead to that change. That's how it worked for me. My heart's got to change. Though it may be your life's experience that God uses to lead to that change. It's a heart thing. Our heart's got to change. Though, you know, it may be your emotions that God uses to lead to that change. Y'all, it's our heart. And you know, it very well maybe may, may may your doubts that God uses to lead to that change. That was clearly Thomas's experience, my Lord and my God. And if any of those things, my, my, the, my logic skills, my, my reasoning, my emotions, my, my, my experiences, those things can't be in conflict with the Scripture. The Scripture's got to trump that. And so look, I believe those words from, from Thomas, my Lord, my God, I believe that that is a, a declaration. That's a, a proclamation of salvation. That's Thomas's moving from demanding explanation to yielding to revelation. From demanding explanation to, to yielding to revelation. Those words are Thomas's acknowledgement of a heart transplant. It's a heart thing, y'all. It's always been a heart thing. Always. Jeremiah, 750, 800 years earlier. Speaking God's words to the exiles in Babylon in Jeremiah chapter 29. Starting in verse 10, he says, For thus says the Lord, When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you. This is the Lord talking through Jeremiah. And I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will hear you. He says, you will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your what? Heart. He says, I will be found by you, declares the Lord. For Thomas, the revelation to cure his doubts 
was physically seeing and touching the wounds of Christ. Physically seeing them. You ever wonder, you ever wonder why Jesus' resurrected body had wounds? Hands, side, why did he have wounds? Here's what I think. I think it's because his wounds ought to always be in front of us. They ought to always be in the forefront of our minds. They ought to always be there because they're going to remind us of his faithfulness and his love. It's it's his wounds, y'all, that show me that friends and family may fail me, but he never will. It's the wounds that show me that my dreams may shatter, but he will never ever forsake me. It's the wounds that, that show me that though I may not understand everything that God's doing in the world, I can trust him and that there's no one who loves the, the people in the world. There's no one who loves justice and mercy and grace like he does. Y'all, maybe the church, maybe some pastor, maybe some Sunday school teacher has, has let you down but he never will, and it's those wounds that remind us of that. Maybe you felt used and abused by some guy in a church. Jesus will never do that. He was used and abused for you. Has anyone ever loved you like that? You know, a God that that loves us in the middle of us being unlovable, a God that loves us while we were in the middle of being his enemy, is a God that we can trust when he calls us his friend. If he was willing to to endure torture, to endure the cross to save you, you can be sure that he will never, ever, ever leave you. So when Thomas saw the wounds, Thomas saw the hands, the nail-scarred hands. Thomas saw the side. Thomas said, my Lord and my God. He didn't say the Lord and the God. He said my Lord and my God. So even in the doubt, in the middle of the doubt, in the middle of the pit of of the doubt that plagued him, that's when he realized in that moment, in that moment when he put his finger in the hole in Christ's hand, in that moment, he realized that those wounds were for him. Y'all, they were for him. Those wounds are for you. They're for you. That death on that cross was for you. And it was in that moment, I believe, that Thomas got saved. Y'all, listen, your doubts don't freak God out. They don't. And it's not like he's up in heaven uh, saying, asking himself somehow, do I exist? Like, do I exist? Did I Did I really raise Jesus from the dead? You know, maybe I need to check the grave again. He's not up there saying, did I really write that in the Bible? That's not happening, y'all. Let me say this to you you too. And I think this may be a a super big takeaway today. Please, y'all hear this, particularly if you are a super big doubter and you got tons of questions. Hear this, you do not have to fully understand all of the theological truths in this book. In this book, you don't have to understand all of the theological truths, all the doctrines in the Bible. You don't have to to understand all of that to believe. You don't, you don't. You know, St. Augustine, fourth century, 
he called the Christian walk Fides Quarens Intellectum, and that means faith seeking understanding. Y'all, there is enough in this book. There is enough. Without having to understand all the deep truths, there is enough there to believe. Bring him your doubts. Bring him your questions. Dump it all out, man. Don't be holding stuff back. He's big enough to deal with all of that stuff. His question back to you is probably going to be this. Do you have a willingness at least to consider? Do you have a little, just, just enough humility to consider that you may be wrong and to consider the evidence that there's enough to believe and to surrender to that revelation? Because here's what I know. He will meet you where, where he determines you need. You can quit demanding and just yield to the revelation. And again, you don't have to understand it all. And you may even think that you do. And let me tell you what, the devil's gonna try to convince you that you gotta understand it all. But you don't, the gospel is simple, y'all. I'm a sinner, I'm a sinner, I need saving. I repent of my sin and I believe that the death on the cross took care of it forever. Lord, save me, period, that's it. I don't need to understand all the justification and sanctification and, and, and all of the deep, all that stuff. I don't need to understand all that. I just need to understand who I am and what he did about who I am. That's it. That's all, that's, that's all it takes. There's not degrees of saveness, y'all. There's not. I'm a sinner. I need saving. He died on the cross to save me. Lord, save me. That's it. And if that is you today, if that is you today, let us know, just let us know. And I want you to pray this little prayer along with me and this prayer is not gonna save you. Jesus Christ is gonna save you. It's just a little acknowledgement. So y'all pray this with me. If this is you today and, you, and, 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 and the Lord can handle your doubts and your questions. Lord, I understand that I'm a sinner, I do. And Lord, I understand that you died to take care of that. And I repent of my sin and I believe that that death on the cross, your death on the cross, bought me back from that sin and saved me. And Lord, I want that salvation. In Jesus' name, amen. Let us know, y'all, let us know. Private message us, you know, private message us on this Facebook stream and just let us know. We want to pray alongside of you. We want to walk the journey with you. And if you've got any other prayer concerns about anything, please just let us know because we want to walk with you. That's what Jesus would have us to do is locking arms with each other and this fellowship of the believers. Let me pray one more time. I'm going to turn it over to the worship team. Lord, we are so thankful and so privileged that we are allowed to worship, that we're allowed to worship you. Lord, we're thankful for the technology that allows for all of that to happen today when we can't physically gather. Lord, we're thankful that you're gonna bring us physically back together next week. And Lord, I pray that we'll be safe and we'll be smart and we'll make wise decisions. And if we'll turn to you, you'll lead us and guide us in those decisions. So Lord, I lift up everybody that is listening, that was watching this message today, that you would keep them safe, that you would keep them focused on who you are. Lord, we love you in Jesus' name. Amen.